Thank you for joining us for My Wildlife Style Radio, a podcast series for busy wildlife professionals like wildlife rehabilitators, educators, and veterinary staff. I am your host, Emily Davenport, and I am the founder and executive director for the Rocky Mountain Wildlife Alliance. Our mission is to elevate the care and protection of Rocky Mountain wildlife by fostering a sense of community and collaboration among wildlife professionals. Continuing education and training is an important component of our mission. Most wildlife professionals don't have time to sift through literature reviews or veterinary journals, or even sit through hours of training videos and classes. We have designed our content for the busy wildlife professional so you can learn while you're driving to your center, or working on reports at your desk, or running on the treadmill, making dinner, or even walking your dog. We will offer these classes both in person and online. And in addition, we have created accompanying handouts and podcasts like this one that complement the classes and can be used internally with staff, volunteers, and interns. We believe helping wildlife professionals experience learning in their preferred format and at their own pace results in better educational outcomes. It is also part of our mission to help make continuing education more affordable and accessible so that more individuals can participate and become even more effective caregivers. In our first podcast of the year, we brought you 12 tips every wildlife educator should know. These tips included best practices for working with ambassador animals and creating efficient programming. If you missed it, you can listen to it on our website at www.rmwalliance.org. You can also listen to it on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or your favorite podcast platform. In this episode, we are going to discuss the 10 tips every wildlife rehabilitator should know. Many of our listeners know that I have been rehabilitating wildlife for the last six years with a special emphasis on birds of prey. You learn a lot in a short period of time when you're caring for thousands of injured and orphaned wildlife patients a year. So these tips to me are truly best practices in the industry. And just like last month's tips, to make it onto my list, these tips had to pass a certain criteria. They had to be universally helpful to all in the field, and there had to be important constants based on my own experience working as a rehabber. And most importantly, they had it to be meaningful to me. I collaborated on these tips with a handful of licensed wildlife rehabilitators that are working in the field right now, and we felt that these tips were the most important. With that being said, this is not a top 10 list, and these tips are in no priority order because what is most important to me may not be most important to another. But regardless, I hope you will take these tips to heart and talk about these tips with your staff and volunteers and add to them as the year goes on. In reality, I could probably do a podcast on each one of these tips alone, but today we're just going to skim the surface on these tips, okay? So here we go. These are the 10 tips every wildlife rehabilitator should know. Number one, stress kills. We all know that catching a wild animal causes immense stress on their system, right? And a rehab center is an unfamiliar and unnatural sensory smorgasbord for wildlife. 
There are unfamiliar sights and smells and sounds, and the air temperature and the humidity may be different indoors than it is outdoors. And there's strange vibrations from equipment and unfamiliar um, flickering fluorescent lights that can be stressful to our wildlife patients. Now, in the wild, there are two types of stress. There's eustress and distress. Eustress can actually be helpful. Some moderate or normal stress can be beneficial to a wild animal. It can motivate them to hunt or to forage. It can motivate them to learn techniques to escape predation. So generally speaking, it's motivation to survive. But distress, both in the wild and in captivity, can be debilitating or even deadly. Everything about the rehabilitation process is stressful to an animal. You may have heard of capture myopathy, which is a disease complex associated with the capture and handling of wild animals. Capture and restraint of an injured animal is extremely stressful, as we all know. And hey, in some cases, it's stressful to the handler as well. Um, but stress can result in capture myopathy for our patients. The name capture myopathy, though, is a bit misleading in some ways because the animal doesn't have to be captured. It doesn't even have to be chased or handled to be susceptible. Some species are more susceptible than others. Species like deer, for example, and rabbits. Even some bird species like sandhill cranes and osprey are susceptible. It's even been reported in fish. Capture myopathy results in severe muscle damage due to the exertion or struggle. When the muscle is used, its metabolism changes from using oxygen to using stored energy in the muscle. This leads to a buildup of lactic acid, which goes into the bloodstream, where it changes the pH of the body and affects the heart's output. So if you think about it, if the heart doesn't pump the correct amount of oxygen to the muscle, the muscle starts to die. From there, the product produced by the muscle's death damages the kidneys and damages other organs in the body. There is acute onset of capture myopathy, which generally results in death pretty quickly, sometimes within a matter of minutes. And then there's chronic cases of capture myopathy, where the animal may survive for days or even months, but will often die from heart failure later on. Clinical signs of capture myopathy can even be seen in an animal's blood work via elevated CK, LDH, and AST. At the Raptor Center where I used to work, uh, we saw elevated CK and AST all the time, and it's possible that capture myopathy contributed to that. So there are many reasons why wildlife rehabilitators take their patient's stress so seriously, and I hope you will too. The environmental stress coupled with the animal's injury or illness, can take a patient well beyond its normal threshold for enduring trauma. So what can we do to help alleviate stress in the rehab setting? Well, we can keep patients in a quiet area, use low voices, and limit handling as much as possible. Consider playing a background noise machine that plays bird sounds or water or, or things of that nature, natural sounds basically, and keep certain species out of sight and hearing of one another. Those are all things that we can do relatively easily to limit stress. Number two, hands off is best. When animals come in for care, know how to triage the real emergencies. There are certain things that need immediate attention when an animal comes in for care and things that can wait. The things that absolutely need immediate attention are shock, uh, severe dehydration, 
compound fractures, for example, hypothermia, and the removal of foreign bodies like barbed wire, netting, and string. But there's a lot that can wait. Things like administering food, uh, mild dehydration can often wait, as well as cleaning of minor wounds, um, and most diagnostic tests can wait, as well as your full exam. So keep that in mind when you're getting patients in on admission. So consider shorter initial evaluations, but observe the patient over the next few hours or days. Remember, adrenaline will hide illness on admission. So when possible, let critical animals rest in a warm, quiet spot to calm down before administering treatment and allow more stable wildlife to settle into the new environment after a full evaluation. Maintain a hands-off approach throughout the entire rehabilitation process. This not only limits stress, but also minimizes human imprinting and habituation. Number three, provide all four basic needs. You may have heard of similar philosophies such as the five freedoms or the five domains. They are also very valuable and worth reading up on if you haven't already. I've simplified them for myself and believe that every wild animal has four basic needs that are essential for optimal health. If any of these needs are missing, an animal cannot and will not thrive. Those needs are proper nutrition, shelter, security, and enrichment. Most animals have these needs met in the wild, but also need them in captivity. There's two that are really easy for us rehabbers to take care of right away, and that's nutrition and shelter. Think of a shelter as it can be anything from a kennel to an enclosure, and it shelters the animal from the elements or visual and auditory stimuli. It should obviously be clean and free of organic debris like feces and old food. Nutrition, most of us, we've been trained on already, so hopefully you have a good foundation for that as well. But an animal also needs security and enrichment. Depending on the animal's species, age, and other factors, consider providing hiding places for them, hiding boxes, hiding cavities, um, nests that are specific for certain species, or foster parents for orphans to make them feel more comfortable. You can also put orphans of the same species together to provide safety and security. Add natural branches and plant material to their enclosures to provide some enrichment. This allows your patients to feel safe, secure, and comfortable and will ensure a better outcome in the end. Number four, maintain solid relationships with veterinarians. Wildlife rehabilitators are a self-sufficient breed, relying on their personal knowledge and experience to effectively help wildlife. But having a veterinarian that you feel comfortable with and that is comfortable providing care for wildlife not only gives you peace of mind, but gives you a greater chance of success in the end. And most veterinarians have access to new techniques and continuing education and the highest quality standards in the field. So maintaining good ties with a veterinarian is vital for success. A veterinarian will be invaluable for discussing cases, offering treatment strategies, and helping you manage difficult patients. A strong veterinary partnership can also safeguard the longevity of your rehab organization as well. Number five, self-care helps patient care. This one is really important to me. One of the first things I learned when I began in this profession is that you cannot rescue an animal if you yourself need rescuing. Don't put yourself in harm's way. I like to call this the oxygen mask response. 
You know what I'm talking about. I would venture to guess that nearly everyone listening has flown on an airplane at some point in their life. And we all know that prior to takeoff, the flight attendant runs through the safety briefing. Seasoned travelers can probably recite it word for word at this point. And there comes a point in that briefing about oxygen masks. In the event of loss of cabin pressure, you are instructed to always put your oxygen mask on first before assisting others. These instructions are often counterintuitive to many of us because in the art of being selfless, you want to help others. How could I ever put myself before others, especially in the case of children or in our case, animals? But we've all heard of the dangers of compassion fatigue. It is a condition characterized by a gradual lessening of compassion over time. It is very common among individuals that work directly with trauma victims, such as therapists, nurses, police officers, paramedics, and especially those in the animal welfare field. And it was first diagnosed in nurses, believe it or not, in 1950. Sufferers can exhibit several symptoms, including hopelessness, a decrease in experiences of pleasure, constant stress and anxiety, sleeplessness and nightmares, and a pervasive negative attitude. This can have detrimental effects on the individual, both professionally and personally, including a decrease in productivity and the inability to focus and the development of new feelings of self-doubt. But it's important to recognize that compassion fatigue symptoms are normal displays of chronic stress and it generally results from the caregiving work that we do. Too often, we continue to push ourselves through difficult, sometimes heartbreaking situations while enduring long days and back-breaking work. We are driven to save animals and alleviate their suffering, but we must know our own limits. To avoid compassion fatigue or at least lessen it, don't take on more animals than you can handle. Ask for help and make sure you are giving yourself enough downtime and learn to say no. You will be able to save more lives overall when you take care of yourself first. Remember, put your oxygen mask on first. Number six, wildlife rehabilitators come in all sizes. While large rehab centers are often the face of the industry, especially with their ability to care for hundreds, sometimes thousands of animals, and then home-based rehabbers provide an equally valuable type of care. Their smaller operation often specializes in one or two species and can provide around-the-clock care. There is no right way to rehabilitate animals. In fact, we believe the ideal wildlife rehabilitation model would be for larger centers and home-based rehabbers to work frequently together and collaborate and cross-refer more often. I have seen this work on a number of occasions here in Colorado. I feel very lucky to have a great system of support where rehabilitators large and small work together to maximize their impact for wildlife. We have small home-based rehabbers that specialize in hummingbirds, for example, and many of the larger centers will transfer the hummingbirds to her because they need that specialized time-intensive feedings, and a small home-based rehabber can give that to them. We also know small rehabbers in the area that specialize on raccoons that still have their eyes closed, for example. They can give them the time that they need, the specialized care that they need, and then once their eyes are open and they need a larger area to roam, they can then transfer them to larger centers. So this works both ways. 
And really, it's a win-win for the large rehabber, the small rehabber, and the wildlife in care. Number seven, let the public help you to help wildlife. We enter this field because we love animals, but we also quickly learn there's a significant human component to what we do. We deal with people who are highly emotional about finding injured or orphaned animals. We deal with conflicts between wildlife and humans. We deal with well-intentioned people who don't always make the best choices for wildlife they encounter. While communicating effectively with the public can help, it can be a challenge. So knowing how to calm them and educate them is very important. There's one great resource that I can give to you today. Um, There's a book called Answering the Call of the Wild by Aaron Luther from the Toronto Wildlife Center. It's an excellent resource that kind of walks you through a variety of scenarios and really helps to provide the foundation for training for dealing with the public and human wildlife conflicts. I mean, let's face it, dealing with the public can be stressful, but it's important to first and foremost calm the caller down and be nice. It's really important to make sure you show empathy over the phone. You can encourage cooperation and resolve problems by just being receptive and taking away any threatening elements of the situation and presenting a visible solution. That's always important. Um, Get good information from the people you interact with. Make sure you're asking enough good questions so that you can actually help in a situation. Also confirm what the person is reporting. Are they truly interpreting the situation correctly? So confirm the species and the circumstances. Ask questions like, is it an orphan? Or is it a sick or injured animal? And in the event of a a nuisance wildlife problem, try and eliminate the problem, not the animal. Most animal problems are really people problems, right? And our interactions with the public can have lifelong impacts on helping with wildlife. Number eight, release should be about the wildlife. I know that's common sense, but releasing an animal back into the wild is one of the most stressful components of wildlife rehabilitation, both for the rehabilitator and the animal. Think of how much time, energy, and effort goes into preparing an animal for release. An animal may be in rehab for weeks and sometimes months, and we spend so much time focusing on their care and preparing them for release I would really like us to also spend that same energy on the release itself. We have to make sure that the animal has recovered from their primary injury or illness, and we have to make sure they have a positive health screening before they go back out into the wild. We want zero exposure, uh, no infectious diseases or parasites going back out into the wild. We also want to make sure they're in top physical condition. But then there's other things that are outside of our control, such as weather. We have to take weather into consideration during release. Um, And then the release site location itself. And then the season or the time of year might play a role in when we release an animal, as well as the behavior and psychological fitness of an animal. Also, do they have the proper food recognition or hunting skills that they need? What about foraging skills? Do they have predator recognition and avoidance techniques? Um, including that of human interaction. So there's so much that really we need to think about about release as well. And when we're preparing an animal for release, 
we have to remember it must be captured, it has to be handled and evaluated again, and then it has to be transported to the release site. So your team should take every precaution to ensure that animal's best chance for survival. Working with your local fish and game is also a great idea to make sure you are picking a great location, time of year, and that they also feel comfortable with, with the way you're moving. Your team should take every precaution to ensure the animal's best chance for survival. You also have to consider how many of one type of species you plan to release at one time. Overloading the ecosystem can have a very negative impact, as we all know. And always release an animal into a suitable habitat, away from roads or other dangers. Make sure you release into an area where the animal was found to minimize the risk of spreading disease. And also consider the time of day. If an animal is nocturnal, a daytime release is likely not what's best for its survival, despite the positive publicity the event could generate for you. Lastly, consider the physical method of release. For example, we believe there are far more humane ways to releasing raptors and other large birds than just tossing them into, an, into the air. So think about all the different components that go into the release itself um, and keep the wildlife in mind. It's all about the wildlife. I really could do a podcast alone on release criteria. It's such an important topic. Number nine, create a support system. This one's really important to me too because I have spent the last year surrounding myself with a positive network of people that lift me up and enhance what we are doing here at the Rocky Mountain Wildlife Alliance, and I couldn't have done it without them. So make sure you surround yourself with a positive network of friends and family and other professionals who support you and your mission. That's so important to success. Check your state's regulatory website for helpful information about becoming a licensed rehabilitator. Consider joining organizations like the Rocky Mountain Wildlife Alliance or the International Wildlife Rehabilitation Council or the National Wildlife Rehabilitation Association. Um, they have so many great continuing education opportunities and a great support network. So consider joining one of those if you haven't already. And lastly, number 10, work together. No matter how many other wildlife rehabilitators and organizations there are, remember, there is no such thing as competition in this profession. That's something I believe wholeheartedly. We have to remember, when like-minded people work together, we create a stronger, more professional, and more powerfully united mission for all of us. All right, we are just about out of time for today. If you would like to share this podcast, it is free and available for everyone. You can find this podcast and others on our website, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and more. Tell us what you think of our show by using the hashtag MyWildLifestyle and MyWildLifestyleRadio. If you would like more information on this topic or the accompanying handout for this podcast, it can be found in our resource center on our website, and that's at www.rmwalliance.org. And if you would like to become a member and receive exclusive continuing education content, visit our website and go to our member center. Also, stay informed and follow us. Keep up with what we're doing. Make sure you follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. 
So thank you again for joining us for My Wildlife Style Radio. I look forward to bringing you more educational topics soon.